news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Before we dive in, I'm handing over to Carly. Hello, everybody. A reminder, this show is an unscripted program, and our conversations have been edited and condensed and is not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. Thank you so much, Carly. Okay, Cece, let's dive in with that first query. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thank you for all the helpful insight you give on the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I first discovered Carly through her appearance on Rose Quinn's Authors and Agents podcast, and after learning about The Shit No One Tells You, I have devoured your Books with Hooks segment. I am writing to you today, seeking feedback on my query letter and first five pages. I have queried 12 agents so far, but received only one partial request, which ended in a rejection. I would appreciate any advice you could give on how to improve. An investigator and a society darling join forces to unmask their mutual friend's killer in Murder Comes to Mayfair, my adult historical mystery with serious potential, complete at 92,000 words. 
its Regency setting, banter, and slow burn romance will appeal to fans of Andrea Penrose's Rexford and Sloan Mysteries and Dina Rayburn's Veronica Speedwell Mysteries. London, 1811. A member of the elite Bow Street Runners, Henry Cross has worked his way up from poverty to become a respected investigator until new evidence indicates he might have sent the wrong man to prison for murder. With an anonymous crime writer questioning his every move, Henry reopens his former case to save an innocent man from the gallows and preserve his own reputation. Barrister's daughter, Augusta Bancroft, yearns for more than hosting parties and attracting suitors. Her scathing quill advocates for the unfortunate souls that high society would rather forget. But crime writing is not a suitable pastime for a lady. If anyone discovered she was the author known only as George Bones, it would result not only in her ruination, but her beloved families as well. When Henry's investigation leads him to Augusta's social circle and their mutual friend is murdered, they forge a clandestine alliance to find the killer. Following the clues takes them on a twisty journey from the bustling streets of Covent Garden to the refined townhouses of Mayfair. As Henry and Augusta uncover infidelity, lies, and corruption, they discover that finding justice might mean causing the scandal of the social season. I am an active member of the hashtag booktube community on YouTube, Jackie Reads and Writes, and the Mystery Writers of America Florida chapter. This is my first novel. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Jackie. Awesome. Thanks so much, Cece. How long was that pitch and what did you think of it? So this one came in at 392 words. First, thank you so much for these kind words about the podcast. This is so sweet. Really appreciate it. I really like the first paragraph. I feel like it told me a lot about the book and it really set up the expectations for the kind of story I was going to get. So I really enjoyed that. Small note, the line that reads, Henry reopens his former case to save an innocent man. At this point, is it possibly an innocent man? Is he still not sure? I feel like that will really affect the tension, especially since if he's sure he's an innocent man, then he must have proof. And since he's law enforcement, he could probably just tell people that the guy's innocent. So I don't know. I would just maybe write possibly innocent man to up that tension. And I would really like clarity on why if he as law enforcement is so convinced of his innocence like why can't he just get his colleagues to get on board behind that is it corruption is it prejudice like what what exactly is behind this wrongful conviction i also really wanted to know why these two people get together right like what makes them band together to forge this clandestine alliance and find the killer I realize that they have this mutual interest, but is it a specific thing that each of them is bringing to the table? Is it a situation where no one else believes him? And so having her believe him is really important. I just really wanted to know that. And I think this is really my big picture note. I don't understand how the new murder is connected to the old one, if it even is connected to the old one. Right. And I think it should be just to give a sense of like a cohesive story, like it all comes together and a murder mystery, like all the puzzles start fitting. And I don't get it. Like, I don't understand how the two storylines come together. I will say that the line that ends in might mean causing the scandal of the season. That to me felt less staky as 
less stakey is not a word, but I'm just using it. Like the stakes aren't as high is what I'm saying, right? Because this is a murder mystery. We have murder happening here. We have a possible innocent man who might be sentenced to death and well, who was sentenced to death and who might die. So I don't know if that line is right. Like I still, I like it as a line, but I don't think it's the major dramatic question. And you mentioned there's a slow burn romance. So I like that element too. And overall, like really interesting. I would be, my curiosity is very piqued by the query letter, which is really the job. I just think that more work needs to be done to make sure everything comes together. Thank you, Cece. Before we go to Carly, I have a question here because the author has only gotten one request for a full, which generally tells us that the query letter is not doing its job. If they'd had more requests for fulls and then got rejected, we were like, okay, the pages aren't doing their job. My question here is, you know, studies show that women do most of the book buying and women do most of the reading of these kinds of stories. Would it actually serve her to maybe begin with Augusta's POV in the query letter, even though she doesn't begin with Augusta to kind of center the sort of feminist female character before we move on to Henry? Or do you think that's not going to help or change anything? I think this is really interesting. And something I was going to point out was this ratio as well of the 12 to 1. One thing it doesn't tell us is how long it's been on submission for. But the fact that there was a partial request which ended in rejection tells me like, you know, it's been enough time, at least maybe six weeks. But maybe it's been six weeks. Maybe it's been six months. We don't know. There's a few things that I think about in, in that capacity. So you know, I think we can talk a little bit more when we get to the pages about the starting and the starting point of the story, which is, yeah, we obviously start with the with the male POV here. So I think there's a couple, I think there's a number of things to unpack about why this isn't getting requests, because I do think this is incredibly strong. And if somebody is interested in a book like this, there's no doubt why you wouldn't want to request it. So I'm thinking in terms of the querying, because a lot of agents ask for pages pasted into the email. I'm thinking it's not the query letter that's the problem. It's the first five pages. And obviously, Obviously we can get into that. Yeah, valid point, because I think we're all going to give feedback that the author perhaps isn't starting in the right place, and we can definitely help you there in strengthening that. So good point. Cece, did you have anything to add in terms of centering the female protagonist in the query? Again, I agree with Carly. I would care more about the page. I do care more about the pages than anything else, but like, I'm not going to lie. I'll admit to my own bias. I care more about stories where women are at the center. I It's just what I gravitate towards, fair or not. I will say, though, that studies show that women are fine reading about male protagonists. It's the other way around that's typically a problem and obviously improving as our society makes progress. So I don't know. Like, it would work for my brain. But again, I care more about the pages than anything else. And the pages do have him. So I don't know. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, maybe the author can think about where they're beginning when we get to the pages, and maybe that'll inform the order in which they present the characters in the query. Okay, Carly, what else did you want to add to that? All right. So one thing I wanted to point out here, which I love when the query letters on the podcast sync up, because this is something we can talk about with both pitches today, which is unlikely friendship stories and how people from two different worlds come together. Every editor that I talk to, literally everybody who acquires fiction always says, I'm looking for unlikely friendship stories. So there is a bit of a slow burn romance here. So I don't think it's so much as like unlikely friendship as it is potentially like, you know, two people whose, you know, I guess I said worlds collide, but they have this mutual friend. I don't know. I would just be potentially high. If it is unlikely friendship, this is something everybody wants. So how can we figure out a way to kind of allude to that? Or, you know, again, if it is unlikely friendship 
focusing on that because it could be unlikely friendship friends to lovers it could be both of those things and again those are things that agents and editors would potentially be looking for so those are things that you might want to think about highlighting I think that the comps are super strong because they're so vibey you know in terms of like as soon as you see those covers of those projects you know like exactly what you're getting which is so key and that's why I think with this type of pitch it's so clear what this book is and who it's for you know it's a mystery historical like all of these things so it comes off really clear so I think this is what I, I'm concerned about is if agents want this type of story, you provided them with something that's super interesting. And yet you're not getting the request rate that you're hoping for. So I don't know. I don't think it's the query that's the issue here. I think this is really, really interesting because, you know, in terms of motivation and stakes, like reputation is the number one stake in terms of like 1800s life, right? That's huge. That's that's a huge deal, reputation. And that comes up for both of them. So yeah, I, I don't think the query letter is the problem here. I think it's voicey, but it's straightforward enough that we understand what's going on. I think it's pretty strong. The only thing that I would add is in the author bio paragraph, you talk about being part of the booktube community, which I think is awesome. You didn't mention how many followers you have if you don't have a lot then don't mention it but I'm just saying oh if you if you're like has sneaky like 1 million subscribers or something definitely put that in there but you know if it's more modest obviously you don't have to include it I was just like huh that was just interesting to me that potentially you left that out awesome Carly thank you so much okay Cece what was in those opening pages so we have our protagonist Henry at the Naughty Fox drinking and he's thinking about an article that he first heard about when he was leaving work that day and a colleague told him about it and this colleague was clearly very happy to be mentioning the article though he tried to conceal that. And at the Naughty Fox, he's having conversation and there's a little bit of banter with Nell about how he doesn't really see women and Nell would know this because he rents a room from her. And he observes his surroundings, and then he reads the article again. And the article is exactly what we get in the query letter, which is a violent attack, in his opinion, of course, of his character, of his detective work, of the case. And he, after reading the article, which we also see, we see the what he's reading, he thinks about how it's completely wrong, how he did do his job, and there was lots of evidence that the person actually did commit the murder. And the thing that most stands out for him is that the killer, the man who's in jail now, supposedly loved this woman. And Henry thinks to himself, if he loved a woman like that, he would never let go and he would never, he wouldn't have left her for anything in the world. Thank you, Cece. Okay, so what was your take on that? So what I really love here is that the writer was so honest. She was like, look, I've queried 12 agents. I've only gotten one request. Like, how can I improve? Like, I love how direct and to the point she was. And so I'm going to also be direct and to the point. The reason why you're not getting requests, in my opinion, is not a lack of talent. The pages are polished. The writing is strong. Like, you know what you're doing. It's not a situation where I, I go, oh, okay, like, I really think you need to work on your writing on a line level a lot before you, you might be ready for this. Like, this is not that situation. I think it's a matter of structuring the story and structuring the scene. So scene, let's, let's stay on the scene. Let's imagine you want to keep this scene. It needs curiosity seeds. You're doing a really good job of setting up the plot storyline, which is exactly what we see in the query letter, but not juiciness. Like we need juiciness. And I highlighted a whole bunch of moments where I thought, well, could the juiciness go here? Could the juiciness go here? You're also giving us two stories in one. So we have Henry at the Naughty Fox, and then he thinks back to leaving work. So we kind of go with him there for, for a second. And then we're back at the Naughty Fox. And then he reads the article again. 
First of all, why is he reading it again? Is it just so we can read it? Because if so, and if you're really, really keen on showing us the article, maybe an epistolary component to this might be better. I don't think we need to see it. I just don't think we need to see it at this point. I think it's too early. But if again, if you do, I wouldn't cut the scene to have us read it. It's asking the reader to start two different books. And I know that's not what you think you're doing, but it is because our brains, our brains are tired, not just agents, everyone, right? Like everyone is overstimulated in this content heavy world. So it's hard. It's hard to pull this off. Like it's really, really hard. So again, I think you're giving us too much by including the article and I don't think we need it. And then like I mentioned before, I think you have a real talent for writing. And I think there are moments where there's opportunity for depth. So for example, when he's having banter with Nell, Nell calls him handsome. And it's a throwaway comment. Like it's embedded in the middle of the sentence. How someone reacts to being called good looking says a lot about them. Like a lot. Is he secretly prideful? Is he shocked? Maybe no one's ever called him beautiful. I don't know, right? Like what is his reaction? I feel like that would say a lot about him and it would go a long way towards character development. Is he flattered? Maybe he's not. Maybe he's uncomfortable. I don't know. When she teases him that he'd never brought a woman home with him, especially in those days, like, is this something that, again, is there pride attached when he hears this? Does he go, yeah, that's not the kind of guy I am, you know, and he's very proud to be that way. Does he feel inadequate for some reason? Something else. So I do think that there's room to to go deeper. And the other thing I want to say about the letter is because he's reading it again, having his mind go through the reasons why the letter is inaccurate isn't super realistic because he's already read it. So he's already thought about that. So I guess the placement also wasn't working for me in that sense. I also caught a line that I am worried is POV hopping. So I highlighted that for you and asked a question. Maybe it's not. Maybe I just, you know, missed something. But if it is, take a look at that too. And yeah, those are my notes. I, I do think you have a real talent for writing. And I want to stress that because it is the hardest part. Like the hardest part is the writing. The part that you can't fake is the writing. So so good, really good job on that. Thanks, Cece. Yeah, I agree. Very, very strong writing at the line level. And this is someone who understands historical fiction really well. Tone, everything was excellent. Okay, Carly, your take? All right, I'll start at the top of my notes and then I'll kind of get into piggybacking off of Cece's comments. So I agree with everybody. I think this this person is incredibly, incredibly talented. So this is why, again, shocking that the request rate isn't kind of aligning with the level of talent. So let's get into it. Great first line. First line is, the first article appeared on a Wednesday wedged between the latest news from Cadiz and an account of the recent Nottingham riots. I think this is great because first meaning there will be more articles potentially, Wednesday meaning it was important enough to potentially remember that, and Nottingham riots meaning like there's turmoil in the universe that they live in, right? It's like, you know, it's a obviously a city, but like, you know, there's there's tension somewhere in, in the country. I don't I just thought that was really really interesting. So what this excels at is there's secrets, there's scenery, and then we're kind of in this position of waiting, right? So he's waiting. This is where I think we're tripping up, right? Because not only is he sitting and waiting for somebody, the movement is happening all around him, right? So he's at the bar. It's like everybody else is moving. He is not moving. And so I think if we're going to stick with this as the opener, what I would request this person do is just much more like other people cutting him off and coming into conversation and stumbling by him. Like we have Nell that cuts him off at one point, but I think his train of thought needs to constantly just be like, you know, 
people coming up and chatting with him and this and that. What I would suggest is when we're doing this article, which is this piece that kind of takes us away, he's reading the article again in the newspaper. This is where, again, the reader just like the eyes start to glaze over. I think we need to just cut to the chase and he reads a line. So we just get like, you know, maybe like a couple, two, three lines of italics. And then he's interrupted by somebody else so that he can never finish his train of thought so that the reader's like, I want him to finish that train of thought, but he's not able to because so-and-so comes down and sits beside him or I don't know, like potentially a police carriage goes by and some police on their horses go by like something or there's a fire right and the little fire carriage goes by like what is it that in this world that is interrupting him that he can't stay in the moment which again gets the reader to think I wish he finished that thought but he wasn't able to again we're story forward story forward story forward this currently isn't story forward enough so that's my main note to kind of I think help fix some of the problem if we're going to remain in this scene because this character it's not that he's unlikable because I think this is incredibly interesting but as Cece was getting at some of these like interiority moments about like how does he feel about being called handsome how does he feel about potentially you know not bringing a partner back home to his room things like that that that's what we're missing here and the other thing is when we know we have another character that we're going to meet our female character how quickly can we meet her because right away when there's a part where he says a couple came into the bar and they were wearing like he noticed what they were wearing and they went and sat down I immediately thought this was our female character so then I was waiting for her you know I was just waiting for that moment where these two worlds are going to collide I need these two worlds to collide really early on if it isn't these first five pages thank you Carly yeah my suggestions here were can we not leverage Nell as a character because she kind of mocks him and stuff why could Nell have not have read that article and now she's needling him because she knows it's going to really bug him because she knows he's very vain about his job. And she can be like, oh, how do you feel about the article? And her saying certain things from the article is a much more organic way of the reader getting that information as opposed to just putting it there in exposition. And then just two, I'm wondering if we shouldn't go back to when the crime is committed and he's actually there on scene in the December and we see the way his mind works as he works through the entire crime scene so that later when we see the criticism of him as the reader we get to decide how valid that is. Carly what else did you want to add? I just wanted to come back to Nell for another second. So what she really reminded me of was like an 1800s version of Ted Lasso. You know, when they all go to the bar and they're always talking to the owner of the bar and she's always just like chirping them, giving them drinks, taking away their drinks, just like always up in their face. And she was really like, that's a Nell to me. So if there's a way to make that more playful, like that Ted Lasso character, and I'm blanking on her name, but you know, you can picture the bar owner. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, she's a great character because she's in everyone's business and she will know he's lived there for so long she's gonna know what's really gonna bug him and she seems like the type to push other people's buttons so I feel like her referring to the newspaper article would be a great way but you know I feel like we're gonna find out the most about this character on the day that he's investigating this crime and you can have that happening in December in chapter one or whatever and then we can fast forward to the present day when this article comes out so I think you've got lots of different options of Where to begin, you just need to circle your building a little bit more thoroughly. Okay, Carly, can we now go to your query? Dear Ms. Waters, I am so grateful for all that you and your podcast co-hosts do to help emerging writers like me. After much internal conflict about whom to query, it was your appearance on another podcast that tipped the scales in your favor, hearing you speak on Lit Match about your interest in BIPOC stories not centered around racial trauma, I thought you might enjoy my manuscript. 
Title Redacted, my 90,000 word work of commercial women's fiction, mirrors the diverse cast and complicated relationships of the HBO series Insecure, and combines the plot twists and dubious choices of flawed characters in Emily Giffen's The Ties That Bind with the tone and themes of self-reckoning and resilience in Linda Holmes's Evie Drake Starts Over. I hope it's exactly what you're looking for. After discovering that her new massage client is her fiancé's mistress, 28-year-old Jane Overlook is neither emotionally nor financially able to walk away from her nine-year relationship. Desperate to reverse the mistress's encroachment, conflict-avoidant Jane conceals her identity and positions herself as her client's confidant to determine when and how her relationship went sideways and if it can be saved. Caught up in contradictory intel from the mistress, as well as opposing advice from her sister and two best girlfriends, Jane vacillates between fixing and fleeing. But when she takes on another new client, the aging lead singer and guitarist for a stadium-filling British rock band, their unexpected friendship and his fatherly feminist comments challenge Jane's belief about her own worth and capabilities, making her wonder if there could be more to a happy life than being a happy wife. Just as her fiancé appears to recommit to the relationship, Jane receives a once-in-a-lifetime job offer and believes she can have it all. But following a startling new revelation from the mistress, Jane's own act of revenge threatens to destroy both the love of her life and the career of her dreams. Forced to reckon with the consequences of her actions, Jane must decide whose needs she will sacrifice to achieve harmony. Her fiancé's, her employer's, or her own. Like my protagonist, I'm a biracial woman living and working in Redacted. I'm both a certified massage therapist and licensed psychologist and member of WFWA. I would be delighted to send additional pages or my full manuscript upon your request. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Christina Redacted. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what's our word count there and what was your take on that? All right, so the word count comes in at 410 words. Obviously, there's kind of like a a beefy intro, which, you know, for the podcast, we we totally understand and always appreciate those extra anecdotes. Lit Match is a really great podcast if you guys haven't listened to it. I think Cece and I have both been on it. I know, I think I was one of the first people on it and Cece's been on it as well. It's from a former intern of mine, Abigail. She's super smart editor as well. So definitely check out Lit Match because there's tons of agent interviews on there, which you guys will all love. So there's a plug for Lit Match. Enjoy. Okay, so... I think this is really interesting as a concept, the whole like somebody coming into your world through work who's, you know, cheating on your fiance, right? Like that's a really interesting setup. It's pretty straightforward. And so eventually we get to this whole complicating factors of, you know, work and and some other things like that. But I think early on, we kind of need to introduce into this pitch the idea that there's another element, whether it's potentially focusing on like, if she's misleading a client, does that mean losing her job? Like, what is the, what are the ethics there? And she needs the job because she needs the money. You know what I mean? Like amping up those stakes. This is what I always talk about with women's fiction when I always feel like it's sometimes it's one note because we're not elevating the other pieces in terms of what's the A plot and what's the B plot. And oftentimes women's fiction is trying to make the romance piece the B plot which it should be, but we're not having enough in our A plot, which is career, self-satisfaction, all these like family drama, right? Where that should be the A plot, which just means it's a stronger B plot, but a weaker A plot where it's like, we really need a really strong A plot. So I hope that makes sense to everybody. So that's what I think, you know, is, is one of our issues here. There's another unlikely friendship hook in this one, which I think we need to elevate. So again, super interesting to everybody, this unlikely friendship theme. So How can we focus on trying to elevate the pieces that we think are the most hookable, the most kind of energetic, the most, the things that are going to get the most attention? A couple of things I want to focus on as well is 
what does it mean to have it all? This is very interesting to me as a woman and a feminist and a busy, you know, woman in the 21st century. This idea of having it all. There's been a lot of books about can women have it all. There was that movie also with Sarah Jessica Parker that was adapted from a book about can women have it all, right? So the fact that you just use like she can have it all as a throwaway line. I'm like, oh, we really need to unpack what this means for the modern woman. Like, why does the modern woman have to read this book? That's what I'm kind of coming up against. Another thing I think you're burying here is this act of revenge. Yet the line below it says Jane's own act of revenge threatens to destroy both the love of her life and the career of her dreams. What is this act of revenge? That's another thing where we're just like a throwaway line. That's not a throwaway line, right? So we really, I think, have to lean into the elements of what is relevant to the modern reader. So I think your modern reader is going to want to know what does have it all mean? They're going to want to know what is the revenge that's happening here? Because if you literally have the woman who is sleeping with your fiance at your fingertips, like she's so passive kind of about the fact, oh, we're just, we're just going to be friends. I'm just like, I'm casual, but I'm like, some people would want to snap her neck. You know what I mean? This is a very like, we're just, we're just going to be friends. I get the sense she doesn't care about this man at all. So if she doesn't care about this man at all, we're just going through the motions of her on an emotional, personal journey, which again, creates a weak A plot. And I know I'm speculating a lot based on the query letter, but this comes up a lot when I'm just seeing women's fiction pitches. So this is why I'm trying to, I'm trying to focus on this here because when we get to the story, we want to be hooked and we potentially could be. But when we think about what's going to make a book stand out in a busy market, what's going to make a busy woman pick up this book, we really have to be able to elevate those elements. So those are the types of things that I'm thinking about. Again, all interesting. It's just, you know, how do we how do we just kind of, again, elevate? I don't know how many times I can say the word elevate, but like, you know, there's so much here that's super interesting. And like also another throwaway line to me is kind of like career of her dreams. What is career of her dreams? Is it owning her own business? Is it working in a certain city and having a certain type of clientele, right? So these are, again, throwaway lines to me where I'm like, there is so much more for us to unpack, especially for your modern female audience that I would just love, love to be able to dig into. Thank you, Carly. Before we hand it across to Cece, I want to ask you both how you feel about the word the mistress. It's repeated a few times. And as a feminist, I have a huge problem with the fact that when a woman is involved with a married man, she gets a special name, right? She's a mistress. But when a man's involved with a married woman, he's just a dude, right? He's just whoever he is, Bob, Phil, whoever. So there's like discourse on how women get branded these these names and men can do the same thing and it isn't. Should we give the mistress a name or maybe in the next instance, should we call her the other woman? How do you both feel about that? I think that's a really interesting point, which also makes me think of the Cameron Diaz movie, The Other Woman, which is a great movie. And now I want to go watch that movie about befriending the other woman, because that's great. You know what? I didn't think about it the way that you framed it. And now that I'm thinking about that, like using a term like the mistress totally robs her of her identity, right? Because it's just like, hey, we just get to put this label on her. She is a figurehead, essentially, like mistress could be any, any, anyone's mistress, any miss, right? It's not like, oh, Laura or whatever the name is, right? So it really robs her of an identity, which is a limiting factor in terms of making a rich pitch, right? So, you know, if somebody's going to be your client, like they're going to be Laura or Samantha or Pam or, you know what I mean? Like whatever the name is. So, and especially if you're going to befriend this person, they need a name for sure. Great. Carly, Cece? I'm torn. Because it makes it juicier, because our brains go to elicit 
conflict, tension. In terms of how I feel, like how I see, see feel about the word, I'm 100% aligned with you, Bianca. Like, I don't like that we get a word, we women. I don't like that that is something that happens. It speaks to a whole bunch of problems. Does it make the query letter juicier? Yes, but I think other women would just as much. And that way you're not using a problematic word. So changing it to other woman, and, and then like Carly said, other woman, blah, 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 name her, kind of kind of does that trick. So yeah. Awesome, Cece. Okay, what was your take on that? So I want to say that I always talk about the importance of like juicy setups and this juiciness of her befriending this other woman. It's there, right? Like it's it's undeniable. So really, really good job there. Like the potential for juiciness is great. That being said, and I I struggle with this so much. I don't want to overstep and I don't want to make this book about what I think it should be, but I'll give you an idea. Have you considered writing this, making this dual point of view? Like the fiance and the other woman or however you want, like whatever her name is, right? Like just because you mentioned Emily Giffen, right? And I adore Emily Giffen. I also adore HBO's Insecure. So when I read your first paragraph, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to love this. And with Emily Given, she has a book. It's it's one of her very old ones. It's called Heart of the Matter that does have that dual point of view. And it just elevates the story so much in terms of like giving you the other side of things and, and just making you feel like, oh my gosh, it's so complicated. It's so messy. Like it's so emotional. So I don't know. I read this and I go, okay, the potential for juiciness in the setup is there, but how does the juiciness, like how do you keep delivering the juiciness? And that's where I'm not super clear on. And I think this kind of ties into Carly's note too about the A plot and B plot, making sure that you're always escalating the tension. Specific questions I have are, there's a line that reads, Jane receives a once in a lifetime job. So is this the job that's going to give her financial freedom? Because we do know that one of the reasons why she stays with him is a lack of financial freedom. I know it's not the only reason, but if so, I'd love clarification on that. The line that reads, act of revenge threatens to destroy both the love of her life and the career of her dreams. Just so we're super clear, the love of her life is the cheating dude? Because I'm not like, fine, because, you know, I, I get it. Like, maybe, maybe yes, maybe he is the love of her life. That makes it messier and more complicated. It's going to make it hard for us to like this guy. But a challenge, I like a challenge. That's fine. I just, you know, it, it kind of made me think, okay, you're going to really have to dig into the emotion here and really be a master at writing emotion for me to be able to root for a relationship where the guy is so awful. But yeah, maybe it could be done, especially again, if we get dual point of view. Sorry, sorry to like overreach here, but I had to say it. So yeah, that, those are my notes. Thank you, Cece. And I think we coined a new phrase now. If there's mistress, then there should be bastardress. I like it. Let's call him the bastardress. Okay, Carly, what was in those opening pages? All right, so we open with our timestamp, Thursday, April 5th. We have our main character trying to push the elevator button, presumably in some sort of large office building. She's like pushing and pushing it, you know, trying to make it come, saying, I should have called Graham sooner. So she heads up in the elevator to the lobby of David Williams and Brown Financial Services. She's speaking with the receptionist. The receptionist kind of is like, oh, are you here for a delivery? Kind of saying, you know, she she wasn't dressed appropriately for a meeting. She is waiting for Graham. Graham comes out, brings her into one of the offices. She's like, oh, you know, Graham's longtime friend. Like he's made it, he's done really well for himself and it makes her feel a bit insecure about her situation. But because he's a good friend, he's seeing her for the problem she has. And she has all these like envelopes in her arm they kind of go off into an office room her phone buzzes and he's like oh you can grab that if you want she says no and then presumably the same person calls him and then we kind of figure out that it's you know the the boyfriend slash fiance 
the friend Graham picks up and then lies and that because they're talking about like is she there and he's like oh no she canceled the appointment you know yada 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 Graham says you know I don't like lying for you but obviously I'll lie for you and they're kind of talking about the situation and that's kind of where we end. Thank you Carly. Okay what was your take on those pages? All right. So I, I really liked this opening line. I should have called Graham sooner. I love it. Like, why sooner? What does sooner mean? What happened? Who's Graham? I think this is a, this is a really good starting point. I don't think we should say Graham's name again in the next paragraph. You say, the proverbial last straw that made me swallow my pride and finally reach out to Graham. You should say him here. That would be my advice. I had a question just about, she says, when the lift arrived. I don't really know too many North Americans that say the word lift. So then I was like, oh, is this not set in North America? I just had some questions. I don't know. Took me out of the moment for a second, but it's a really super, super small thing. I think she did that as a synonym to avoid repeating elevator. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's not that it doesn't work. It's obviously the same thing. And I've lived in the UK, so I get it. There is the possibility that this is set in the UK because the guitarist she meets for a stadium-filling British rock band. So there's also that possibility. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there isn't really anything in the pages other than that to me. Again, I could do another close read. Wasn't anything else in the pages to me that maybe said UK or London, but you know, that's an interesting point. So definitely something for us to think about. All right. So I was kind of curious about why she wore such casual clothes to the meeting. Even though as a friend... She says she wore Chuck Taylors and a faded Old Navy t-shirt and immediately felt underdressed. So if you knew you were going to, you know, it's a financial services office, could be lawyers, could be accountants, could be, you know, whatever. I would think you would probably know to, you know, put on something smart looking like because potentially you could be in a, a troublesome situation, if, even if it's not your usual getup and even if it's your friend. So I don't know. I also felt like we leaned into the shame spiral super hard without a lot of information. So I don't know. I don't know if we have to kind of lean that hard into like, you know, I shouldn't have done that. You know, the like the nerves. That was one note I had. I really liked the interaction between the receptionist and our main character that, you know, the can I help you? Are you here for delivery? I, I definitely enjoyed that interaction. I thought that was that was really good. I loved that Graham lied to the fiance, Ethan. I really liked that. It showed like such interesting solidarity, such interesting friendships, because she also said at one point, Ethan doesn't like how close I am with this friend. That to me was like, honestly, the most interesting part of these pages. So the lying, all of that really, really interesting. So, you know, I I think, I think overall, they're pretty strong. The only thing I will say, which this is interesting, because Cece and I just recorded our Q&A for our November Q&A. And somebody had asked, do my first five pages essentially have to reflect what's happening in my query letter? And this is an example of the query letter in the first five pages, like not aligning super clearly. So, and in my answer, which you guys will have heard in the Q&A, which is, I was like, oh, you know, it really just matters that the pages are super strong. And now I'm reading this and I'm like, I don't, I'm not really seeing the connection between the pitch and the query letter and the pages. So now I'm like, should I change my answer for the Q&A? I don't know. Or maybe it's just so situational. So I'll, I'll throw it over to Cece as well to, to comment. Yeah, I actually like the mismatch. For me, when if it's like a completely different situation, like we're in a war zone, that would probably throw me off. But mismatch works for my brain because I always go, how are you going to get there? You know? What's most important for me is that it's juicy and filled with curiosity seeds and interesting characters and great lines. So I like the mismatch. I think that works. That works really well. So 
to add to Carly's critique, one thing that really, really bugged me, and again, our subscribers will be able to see all my notes, all my highlights, but I really wanted to focus on, on one thing that really tripped me up here. So we have our protagonist sitting across from Graham. Ethan calls her. Ethan is her fiance. She does not take the call. He says, you can take the call, he, Graham, and she says, no. Then Ethan calls Graham, okay? Before she can do anything, Graham picks up and says, she's with me now. Not she, but whatever the line is. He refers to a her, a her, a she. Immediately, immediately, her brain would register panic or some other visceral reaction. Why? Because she lied to her fiance. She's being caught in a lie. When they hang up, and yes, Graham lies for her, right? Because he doesn't say she's with me now. She, he said, sorry, she canceled or, or whatever it was. That's what he says. As soon as they hang up and Graham tells her he already knew you were coming because I had already told him, her brain would start going, when? When did Graham tell Ethan? Because if Ethan knew this morning when she lied and said, going out to work, honey, a lie by omission is still a lie. Wouldn't she be wondering why he didn't say anything? Why Ethan didn't go, wait, aren't you going to go see Graham? Graham told me. And if he didn't tell her, why not? This is a friendship that upsets Ethan. When did Graham tell Ethan? This is the first question that would pop in her head after the visceral, panicky emotion of being caught in a lie. This is very, very important to get right because being caught in a lie really ups the tension. And you need more tension because even though there are there is tension in these pages, more tension, always a good thing. So I really wanted to know more about this dynamic and it really, really tripped me up when I read this. So I would adjust. There's again, like I said, other notes too. I really liked the fact that there's a line that reads, seeing the trappings of his success triggered feelings of pride for my friend, along with self-doubt about my own chosen path which is excellent, right? In real life, comparison might be the thief of joy, but in storytelling, it's the giver of character development and the helper of tension. And so I love that she's comparing. I love that she's feeling all these messy emotions. I just wanted more and I definitely wanted that interaction to, to be properly calibrated. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, all I can add there is that I felt that we needed more of the curiosity seeds early on. So while I also loved the line, the opening line, I should have called Graham sooner, I think there's room there to even expand on that and saying, but I didn't because I knew how Ethan would react to that. And I think we need to know early on that Ethan doesn't know she's there, that he doesn't know she's coming. Because again, that's curiosity seeds. Why does her fiance not know about this? Why has she lied about it? Et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like if you give us more and hinted at more upfront, it immediately ups attention because we know she's doing something clandestine so that when that phone call comes through, we are freaking out as much as she is because we understand the tension and the risk at the same time that she does. Okay. But otherwise, great pages there as well. We had really good submissions today. All right, Carly and Cece, thank you so much for your critique. Let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. 
They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the author of When These Mountains Burn, which was the winner of the 2020 DeShiel Hammett Award, The Lion That Held Us, winner of the 2018 Southern Book Award, The Weight of This World, and Where All Light Tends to Go, an Edgar finalist for Best First Novel. His stories and creative nonfiction have appeared in a number of publications, and he's the author of the memoir Growing Gills, A Fly Fisherman's Journey, and he's co-editor of Gather at the River, 25 Authors on Fishing. He lives in Tecassegee, North Carolina. I hope I pronounced that right, David. No. What was it? <laughs> Say it for me. Tecassegee. 
Takaseji. You see, I looked it up on the damn internet. This is why you can't believe any damn shit you read on the internet because that is how the person said you pronounced it. And somebody, a whole bunch of people gave them five stars on the pronunciation. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna tell them some shit after this. Right. So it is my pleasure to welcome David Joy. Now, David, I've been trying to get you on the show for a long time. I know that where you are, you don't have reception for podcast interviews and you've had to drive into town for this and I know a ton of our listeners are going to be really really pleased about that so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us yeah thank you for having me right so before we begin I want to give our listeners an overview of the book that we're discussing today it's those we thought we knew so Toya Gardner a young black artist from Atlanta has returned to her ancestral home in the North Carolina mountains to trace her family history and complete her graduate thesis. But when she encounters a still-standing Confederate monument in the heart of town, she sets her sights on something bigger. Meanwhile, local deputies find a man sleeping in the back of a station wagon and believe him to be nothing more than some slack-jawed drifter. Yet a search of the man's vehicle reveals that he is a high-ranking member of the clan and the uncovering of a notebook filled with local names threatens to turn the mountain on end. After two horrific crimes split the county apart, every soul must wrestle with deep and unspoken secrets that stretch back for generations. Those We Thought We Knew is an urgent unraveling of the dark underbelly of a community, richly drawn and bracingly honest. It asks what happens when the people you've always known turn out to be the monsters. What do you do when everything you've ever believed crumbles away? Right, so David, we will be getting into the book in quite a bit of detail, but something I want to begin with is this book has been classified by some as a procedural or as Appalachian Noir. Can you give us a better understanding of the conventions of the Appalachian Noir genre? I think, you know, for me, when I first started, that wasn't really a term. You know, that that's something that's really come about over the last decade, and I kind of classified myself as that early on, playing off of a title by Daniel Woodrell. You know, when he first wrote the novel, Give Us a Kiss, it was called Give Us a Kiss, A Country Noir. And I was really influenced heavily by him, especially with, with my earlier work. But I like that term. And, and I think the reason I like that term and identify with it is that to me, it is a matter of like an an overriding mood. To me, it's about mood. You know, anybody who's ever read my work, I, th I think that's what you're going to experience from the first line is, is kind of this, this overwhelming mood. You know, I think about a novel like The Weight of This World, and the, the opening line was Aiden McCall was 12 years old the one time he heard I love you. If you read that line and you think that you're going to get a happy ending, you're in the wrong book. So, yeah, I think it is definitive of place and, and, you know, all of my work is very much deeply rooted to place, but, but it's kind of an incorporation of place and kind of that noir tradition. Yeah, we'll get to more discussion about place shortly. I'm also interested to see there's now something called New Zealand noir coming out, which seems to be doing quite well. And that also didn't used to be a genre. So how awesome that you are part of a birth, you know, genre yourself. In terms of the procedural part of the novel, like how much is researched? What are your sources in terms of doing a procedural? Because you have to know, like how cops investigate things, how the police department runs, etc. 
Yeah, that was something that was entirely new to me. You know, I think that a lot of people classify my work as crime fiction. I don't know if that's really what I would classify my work as, but none of my work has been procedural. None of my work has really even been a mystery. There have always been crimes at the heart of the novels, but you always knew who did it. You know, I was less interested with the law enforcement side of things than I was you know, providing a stage for voices that are seldom heard. With this novel, it was very different. And it was because, like, I had a purpose. And in the end, I just thought that that using the elements of a traditional mystery would allow me to tell the story in a way that, that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And in the end, I didn't want, like, you know, the the great, illumination, like the great discovery. I didn't care if the crime was solved when I started. I wanted the revelation and the discovery to be characters coming to learn things about themselves and about the community around them that they didn't know beforehand. And and I knew that I wanted the book to do that. And then I just thought, well, it would be kind of a, you know, a fun and interesting thing to do to kind of turn the mystery on its head where where you know that's the discovery yeah more about who did it was the ripple effects of that and people like reevaluating everything they thought they knew about people who they'd known their entire lives you know I don't want to give much away but for me that's certainly what came through and reading your work David is such an immersive experience it is just so different to anything else you read I have never been to any of the places you write about one it makes me want to go and two when I'm immersed in the reading experience, I feel like I'm there. So for any of our listeners who want to learn how to have a place come alive on the page for the listener and do it in a way that doesn't talk down to the listener, because I think a problem with many people who write settings that are not familiar to most readers, they tend to explain things to the reader and put things into context, etc., which is a lot of talking down because readers can figure things out for themselves. Whereas you just, you put the characters on the page it's off to the races and the readers just got to keep up and figure things up yeah you know I, I think a lot of that is unintentional it's, it's not even something that I'm really thinking about when I'm writing the truth is that I just don't know anything else you know like I know one place really well and I know the sound of it I know the way that people would phrase things the way that people talk and because I know it in the way that I do with that type of intimacy. You know, I think it's always come across on the page and it would also just feel like such a waste to try to avoid that in some way. Like I never felt the need to try to make up a place. It was like, I'm gonna set it in the one place I know, which is Jackson County. That's where I'm sitting right now. That's where I've spent the majority of my life. And so all of my work has been very, very deeply rooted to a very specific part of Appalachia. Yeah, so that brings me to my next question. So you've said you've always wanted to write a book about race and that the first pieces of this particular book you wrote more than 10 years ago. Now, as you said, all your work's been set in Jackson County, but this book, as much as it deals with race, it's not just about race within Jackson County or within the American South. You know, you've got a very overtly racist character in the book 
who says all kinds of things, and it's more about racism in the U.S., like on a grander scale. Can you speak a bit about the inspiration for that? Yeah, I think that there are multiple things happening there. I think, you know, as far as why I always wanted to write a book about race, it's because, you know, I think that there are two overwhelming shadows that are you know, hovering over the shoulders of the American South. And one of those, you know, is is religion. Uh, it boils down to that, you know, Flannery O'Connor idea that while the South may not be Christ-centered, it is most assuredly Christ-haunted. You know, I love that word haunted because, you know, that idea of the ghosts that are kind of standing over our shoulders. And if religion is the one that's standing over one shoulder, then the the one that's standing over the other shoulder is is the bloodshed that's on our ground. It's the fact that we live in a lingering history of of the Civil War. You know, it's it's the fact that if you have a long lineage in this place, which I do, you know, I'm a twelfth generation North Carolinian, then that directly ties back to, you know, enslavers and the enslaved. And and so those two things are kind of, you know, the overwhelming, you know, pressures that, that are pushing in on the American South. And, and so that was the reason that, you know, I felt like I was always going to write a book about race because it, in a lot of ways it was unavoidable. As far as how that plays out in the book, I think what I really wanted to do was kind of look at white supremacy as an onion where I was just peeling back layers and peeling back layers, you know, and, and you think of this like really overtly racist character, like, you know, Willie Dean Cawthorn. And to me, he's kind of that papery thin bullshit of an onion. You know, that's what you see on the outside. And it's like, everybody knows that that's what we're talking about, but you rub your hands across that and all that shit pop, it just falls away. Versus, you know, the way that white supremacy really functions in this country is much more obscured and it's a lot more subtle. It plays out on all of these different levels. And, and so I wanted to, you know, kind of go back layer by layer by layer and examine it from the really overt all the way back to the things that were really subtle and unspoken. Yeah, very much so. You know, racism exists on a spectrum. And on the one hand, you've got the Ku Klux Klan. And on the other hand, you know, it's much more subtle. And this book looks at it from like this 360 degree view, which I really loved. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how you and I actually have a lot more in common than, than I would have thought up front. But first, what I want to chat about is... So what we're seeing a lot today, and very rightfully so, is a lot of discussion about who should be writing from which perspective, who's allowed to write what, right? Now, one of your characters is a young black woman, Toya Gardner, and you're obviously a white male author. Now, I know you worked with an authenticity reader on this, and that during that process, a big question arose. Can you write a book about race that is primarily, if not solely, intended for a white audience? So can we speak a bit more about that and your experience of working with an authenticity reader? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I, and so, I mean, what you're getting at is, is issues of appropriation. And, and my initial response would be that all art is a matter of appropriation. If a photographer takes a photograph, it's just as much a matter of what they're leaving out of the frame as what they're choosing to put in it. They're taking ownership of something that is not theirs. 
which by definition is appropriation. You know, me writing across class lines is a matter of appropriation. Me writing across any type of, to be honest, you don't even have to have to cross a gap for it to be a matter of appropriation. But the difference is that when you're crossing that gap from a position of historical and continued power, and as a white man in America, there is no gap that I can cross where I'm not crossing it from a position of power. And so I think that there are a whole lot of questions that boil down to to, you know, if you make that choice, you know, and, and, the, and the first question is quite simply, why? Why do you need to do it? And for me, with this novel, it was a necessity because what I was trying to do was to force white characters into spaces and conversations that they would not be having outside of moments like what take place in that novel. You know, outside of those moments, we're we're silent. And, and so that was the necessity, you know, and, and so for me, then it became a matter of, okay, now you've got to do the work to get it right. And, you know, all along, we keep hearing these people saying, well, I can't do this. I can't do that. You know, I'm being canceled because of this. And it's a bunch of crybaby bullshit because they don't want to be held accountable. And the truth is that you just have to realize that mistakes are not inconsequential. And they're specifically not, you know, they're especially not inconsequential when you're writing from a place of historical power. Because I have, you know, if I make a mistake in that regard, in a whole lot of ways, I could perpetuate all types of things, you know, all types of issues. And and so I think you just have to recognize, you know, you have to recognize, number one, power. You have to recognize the gap. You have to recognize the power. You have to recognize that mistakes are not inconsequential. And if you're not capable of recognizing those things, or if you're unwilling to be held accountable when you inevitably get something wrong, then you probably don't need to do it. Yeah, very, very much so. And, you know, I know with my two novels, when I had authenticity readers, there was a lot I got wrong. You know, I was writing from Gorza characters' perspectives, Zulu characters' perspectives. There was a lot about the culture that I was getting wrong. And without those authenticity readers, I, you know, I really would have portrayed a culture incorrectly on a big stage because I had a big platform and a big stage that I was able to publish outside of South Africa where many black authors weren't. And so it was really important to me to approach that with humility and respect. And I think those are the two things that that I think you and I are 100% agreeing on there. And, you know, you would look at you and I, David, and think that we don't really have much in common besides the fact that we're both authors. I mean, for example, I post pictures of cute squirrels and you send me recipes for them. So just, just based on that, you would think, okay, David and I don't have that much in common. But you know what? I, as someone who grew up as a child, white child in apartheid South Africa, I often speak about the brainwashing that happened with me, that I was brainwashed from a very young age to be extremely racist. Now, something you said in an interview really resonated with me. You said there were histories that were not only taught in school, but they were reiterated at home and there were false histories that were predicated on lies. And I think that's part of the problem when you start trying to have these conversations in that when people were raised to believe these things as fact, 
when you're suddenly telling them that no, they're not fact. It's as if you're trying to explain to someone that two plus two no longer equals four. Can you chat a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I th- you know, I think that, and this is something that I think is is especially hard for Americans outside of the South to understand, and it's because they did not learn the history in the same way. But when we try to have conversations about race in this country, and but specifically about the Civil War, we're operating at a, at a tremendous gap, which is that I'm not that old. You know, I'm, I'm about to turn 40 years old. I graduated high school in 2002, and I grew up being taught that the American Civil War had very little to do with, with slavery. And so if that was taking place when I was in school, just imagine how it was taking place when my parents were in school or when their grandparents were in school. We were taught that the causes for that war had very little to do with slavery. We were also always told that, well, your parents, you know, nobody in your family, you know, owned slaves, when that most assuredly is not the case for someone like me. You know, if you look back in my family line, I come from enslavers, which is a hard thing to wrestle with. But these were things that were taught in school, you know. And so when you jump forward and now we've got all of these these things like, for instance, the 1619 Project, you know, that's really looking at, at the way that race played out in this country. And, and, and so all of a sudden you've got, you know, all of these conversations taking place and you've got, you know, a history being taught that does not match the history that you were taught. There's an immediate defensiveness because it, one of them has to be a lie. And if the one that you were taught to believe is the lie, I think that's a very hard thing to recognize. And, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of defensiveness there. I think there's a lot of defensiveness when we try to have conversations with regards to privilege. You know, I think about someone like my father who grew up knowing poverty with a, with a type of intimacy that I cannot imagine, which is to say at three and four years old, he was finding food for himself, that he grew up in a house that he called the rat house where he was afraid to go to sleep because he was afraid rats would chew his feet off of his legs. Who knew poverty with that type of intimacy? It's very hard to use a word like privilege with him and him not be defensive. And what he's incapable of recognizing, of course, is that, you know, privilege doesn't doesn't mean that your life was easy. You know, a thing like white privilege doesn't mean that your life was easy. It's a recognition that your life and your circumstances were not made more difficult by your race. It's a recognition that, you know, he is much less likely to be pulled over, that he's much less likely to have his vehicle searched once pulled over. It's a recognition that he most assuredly has always made more, you know, at every job he's ever had than black co-workers who were working at the same level. It's recognizing those things. And I, and I think, you know, the issues arise because we're working at such a severe deficit, you know, misinformation and mishistory and, and navigating that space when people are, are so defensive is a, is a difficult thing. And really, that's what I wanted the book to do. I wanted, I wanted to force those characters into those spaces and try to fill out what those conversations look like. Yeah, 100%, 100% you achieved that. You know, I also think of trying to have conversations of privilege with a lot of South Africans 
who immediately will tell you that they worked hard for everything they ever got and no one gave them anything. And again, you're going, but yeah, but you need to reframe that. So another thing that you tweeted the other day also really resonated with me. You said, I guess it's because of how I look that random people feel absolutely comfortable saying the most bigoted shit to me, assuming I'll nod. This, of course, never pans out well for them. But if that's my burden to bear, I'll bear it gladly. And it's the same with me. It's not that people look at me, but they hear the accent and they're like, oh, you're from South Africa. You must be racist as shit. Let me tell you all kinds of stuff that I wouldn't tell anyone else, right? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, with me, you know, is that like they see the camo hat, they know I hunt and fish. Uh, they see me in the pickup truck and they immediately, you know, think that, that I must be incredibly right-leaning conservative and that I think it's just that they feel safe. They feel safe saying those things around me, you know, because of the way I look. And that really gets at the heart of why that novel had to exist, which is that the burden of these conversations does not lie on people of color. It does not lie on people of LGBTQIA, you know, groups. It lies squarely on the shoulders of people like me. And the truth is that the majority of that work has to be done at the kitchen table. It has to be done on the front porches of our houses. It has to be done sitting around a campfire at a hunting camp. That's where those conversations need to be taking place. And that's where the burden of the work lies. You know, I think about just trying to convince someone that white privilege exists. That can't be put on Nicole Hannah-Jones or Ibram X. Kendi to come back and try to explain something that fucking simple to you. Like, they've got more important work to be doing, and they're doing it. So to try to get everyone else up to speed, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, it feels like remedial work, <laughs> but... but Again, I think that I think the burden of that conversation lies squarely on white shoulders. All right. So from that macro level, David, we're now going into we're zoning in on the actual text. So I'm going to read for everybody your opening paragraph. The graves took all night to dig. There were seven in all, each between five and six feet deep, dug by a dozen pairs of hands. Some of the diggers brought gloves and they took turns sharing them with those who had not so as to tried to keep their hands from breaking. By the end, every hand was blistered and burning just the same. Their fingers hurt to straighten, their backs bent crooked as laurel. It was the middle of summer, but on the mountain the air was cool. Each time they swapped out of the graves to rest, they sweat chilled their bodies and they welcomed that feeling, for the work had nearly set them afire. Catedids wailed from the trees and it was that sound that dampened the chomp and clink of spades digging away at the earth the labored breaths of those who drove their shovels deeper. Now, besides the beauty and eloquence of the language, it's just so beautiful. It's the kind of thing I just sat there underlining. I mean, for our listeners, listen, just listen. It was that sound that dampened the chomp and clink of spades. Just, oh my word. Right, so it immediately captures the reader's attention. But also what struck me about this first chapter is how it creates an initial impression in the reader's mind. You hear about people digging bodies. It's the dead of night. You have this idea in your mind of what's happening. You think you know what's happening, but the more you read, the more you're like, something's not right here. I don't think this is what I think it is. It niggles at you 
something's off, but you can't put your finger on it. And then later comes the payoff as to what was really happening in the scene. What this kind of chapter does is it gets the reader fully actively engaged from the get-go. They are not passive recipients of a story that they're being spoon-fed from the first paragraph. They are having to jump in and go, okay, what's happening? I'm creating theories. What do I think is happening and what's really happening? So can we talk a bit about that kind of writing and and the need to get your readers so actively involved? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I don't teach and I've never really been a I've never taught but I did you know I, I did a workshop this summer at a at a settlement school at, in Appalachian Kentucky and one of the things that I noticed about a ton of the writers work in that workshop was that their openings wasted so much time trying to provide a reader with all of this background information the reader doesn't need any of that the reader needs to be like slapped in the face you need to like sink your hands into their shirt and pull them into your face you know and when i think about the writers that you know i was always most influenced by they wrote with that type of propulsiveness you know i mentioned daniel woodrell earlier but i i I think about a novel like tomato red and the very first time i ever read that novel i read the first chapter and i just stopped stunned realizing that I hadn't really taken a breath. And my immediate thought was, how the fuck did he do it? And I read that chat. I I didn't finish the novel for maybe two months because I read that opening chapter probably three or four times a day for a month straight, trying to figure out how he did it. You know, and and I just think that that's what fiction has to do. Fiction thrives in conflict and it, and it thrives in tension and it has to move. And, and for me, I feel like I've always had a knack for openings and I've always had a knack for getting off the stage. The hardest part for me is middles, you know, it's maintaining that type of speed throughout the middle because the middle is where so much of those explanatory parts come into it where suddenly we start figuring things out this is why it is the way it is and it's hard to maintain that type of pace throughout the course of of you know that middle 200 pages or whatever it is yeah i really think that's where writers are made in the middle i've read things that say writers are made with endings and i'm like no i think endings are pretty easy you know what you're working up to etc but like you say it's it's keeping readers engaged theorizing turning pages in the middle as they find things out without like you say too much exposition too much backstory etc to slow it down right the last thing that i want to chat with you about because we're already over time david but you're so fascinating to talk with is we talk a lot on this podcast about how specificity makes a work come alive especially when that specificity is linked to character and reveals something about character. So for our listeners, I'm going to read a few quotes from the novel to highlight how brilliantly David captures this, especially with the use of simile. So here we go. Red mud was caked to the legs of her overalls. She could feel the clay dried like a charcoal mask against her face where she'd wiped away sweat with the back of her hands. Think of the specificity there. Think how visceral that is. We're talking about the senses here. We we can see things. We can feel this charcoal tightening on our face. Now, remember, if he was talking about man who's perhaps a hunter, 
he wouldn't be talking about a charcoal mask because this hunter wouldn't be wearing charcoal masks. But for this woman, she would be more intimately aware of what they would feel like. We have another paragraph here. When she was little, her grandparents would take her to Silva on Saturdays to get ice cream at one of the tourist shops. Her grandfather would tell her what used to be there. A hardware shop, a soda fountain, a department store, a hotel. The names still visible against the brick, faded white paint hanging on like ghosts. The buildings hadn't changed, just the stores and the accents of the people who ran them. So again, this is linked to characterization. What this character remembers, what her, you know, what people in her family remember. And that image like gave me goosebumps, right? The names still visible against the brick, faded white paint hanging on like ghosts. And here's the last one. There was something about that summer, about the place she'd reached as an artist that had changed her. All of the books she'd read, the things she'd studied and learnt over the past six years, had been carefully stacked like the makings of a campfire. And over the past two months, the work became the match. She felt that fire at the table with the sheriff, any filter or hesitation burning away. And she fully understood that there was a very thin line between fearless and foolish. But like that image of, you know... <laughs> carefully stacked like the makings of a campfire and then the work had become a match so david what are you just like naturally ridiculously talented do these kinds of things take a while for you to be able to polish to get to that point i don't think that i'm ridiculously talented at very much aside from maybe chasing turkeys but i think that southern people have a tremendous advantage when it comes to simile and metaphor which is to say that it is it is deeply grounded in the way that we talk. You know, I I think of someone who influ- you know he was a mentor to me, but he's one of the greatest poets I've I've ever you know read, and one of the greatest short story writers I've ever read, who's Ron Rash. But Ron was telling a story once, and 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 it was you know people were asking him about simile and metaphor, and he was saying that it was from growing up with the people that he did, and he said he could remember riding with his uncle once to take tobacco to town to sell it. And his uncle saw all of these women, you know, these young women, and they were scantily dressed for him. But he said, I want you to look at that woman. She ain't got on enough clothes to wad a shotgun. And, and like, this is someone who is not classically trained to be a writer, someone who's never written a story, probably doesn't even read that many books, but it was just natural for him to have that type of comparison. And and really, in a lot of ways, I think I think simile and metaphor, as far as the way that they work naturally, you know, in natural language, it comes from a lack of full knowledge, right? Because you don't have full knowledge about this, and so you make the comparison. Well, it's like this, and and so I think that's why it's as deeply rooted in the way that Southerners talk, the way that we do. And and so, yeah, I do think that I, I had a tremendous advantage. I think that, that, you know, Southerners grew up with a very rich tradition of storytelling, and that's a tremendous advantage. I had a writing teacher tell me once that, you know, I'd been born on third base by being a a southerner as far as writing goes and and i and you know at the time it was like i didn't really understand what she meant but i think i think you know it's those types of things yeah and 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 uh, you know 
again, it, it also, it very much roots a story to place and it makes a character belong on that landscape when they sound the way that they do. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, for our listeners, you'd be forgiven for thinking this is a very heavy book. I mean, it deals with a lot of heavy stuff. Of course it does. There is a lot of heaviness in it, but there's one character in here. David, I've forgotten his name. Who's the guy who has to sleep in his truck because he's scared of snakes? Oh man, I I can't, I'm bad with names. I can't, I can't remember what's real funny. That one detail on someone and I'm sitting maybe like a quarter mile from where this guy lives. And, and like, seriously, a snake got in the guy's house and he spent his entire summer sleeping in his truck because he, he was he was just like, I'm not fucking going in there. I, I was going <laughs> to ask you if that was based on a real story because the specificity <laughs> of that, I was like, no, that has to be a real story. And that character, <laughs> every interaction with that character, I giggled so much and he was really endearing. So, so for our listeners, there's a lot to laugh about in the book as well. So we're going to link it on our bookshop.org affiliate page, those we thought we knew. If you buy it through there, you support the podcast and you support an independent bookstore in the process and you support David. David, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I have absolutely loved this interview. I still have a ton of questions, but we're out of time, but we hope to have you back for the next one. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.